Lux is an international arts agency that supports and promotes artists' moving image practice and the ideas that surround them. Founded in 2002 as a charity, the organisation builds on a long lineage of predecessors, the London Filmmakers Cooperative, London Video Arts and the Lux Centre, which stretches back to the 1960s. Benjamin Cook is the founder-director of Lux and Lux Scotland. He has been professionally involved in the independent film and visual arts sector in the UK for the past 25 years as a curator, archivist, producer, writer and lecturer. In this episode of Into the Mothlight, we'll be looking at the role of Lux and how they support artists working in the moving image. In my chat with Benjamin Cook, we touch on the history of the organisation, the collection of works that they are responsible for, and the importance of being able to access some of the works online. We also talk about the one-to-one advice sessions that Lux delivers for artists and the Lux Critical Forum. However, we started our conversation with Benjamin's first introduction into experimental film. Into the moth light. I have a kind of story that may be... be, uh, may have become a myth (laughs) of my own making in some ways. I see what I do now as a kind of um, as as the kind of end point of my kind of teenage interest. Really, I see I see very much a connection between where I began and where I've ended up in some ways. So, um, when I was a teenager, I was a huge uh, I was a huge film nerd, and um, I've always had this kind of tendency to want to just share things with people you know so it's always that person who is like listen to this you've got to read this you've got to listen to this you've got to watch this and uh when I look at when I think about what I do now and I think about that kind of journey I think I kind of do the same thing actually now I just somehow managed to make a job out of it so um so so like I said I was huge film nerd and um I grew up just outside of London and about 40 minutes outside of London so I did, as a teenager, I did go to like the NFT and the ICA and um, and the Scala, which is, I think, has been, um, for people of my generation, has shaped many people's careers, or twisted many people's minds. <laughs> so, um, so, so I, you know, I really, I, I, I would really say, um, you know, the, the, definitely the Scala, definitely, the, you know, what I was exposed to at the Scala or something that really kind of woke me up to um, different kinds of um, filmmaking and the kind of, you know, experimental artist filmmaking. Uh, so that was one thing. And the other place was the Filmmakers Corp, London Filmmakers Corp, because, like, I was I was a teenager in the 1980s, so I did kind of catch the last the last years of the co-op as well. And I, can, I particularly remember um, the Filmmakers Corp used to do... Uh, um, programming like the experimental film programming for the London Film Festival, which years later I ended up doing um, as well. And uh, one year they did like an all night they did an all night screening of works from the co op, and it kind of completely kind of changed. <laughs> it completely affected me, really. You know, it was really like opened up some doors for me, which haven't closed yet. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that was the kind of broad uh, area of influence. And, and then I just, you know, I kind of experienced all sorts of weird and wonderful things. 
this whole kind of world opened up to me really this this kind of hidden you know kind of secret cinema that was there running kind of under underground all of this time I just kind of followed my nose um as as you did in those days and again this is something that I often talk to my students about that kind of thing of um in the, in those days you really had to kind of excavate and find your taste and find your kind of tribe and so I was lo- I was very actively looking for these sort of people so so inevitably I ended up in those kind of communities with those sort of people who were interested in those things and just you know in those days as well to see these films you had to be at that place that they were showing you know so it brought you in proximity with people and so you know quite uh, quite early on I was aware of the people involved and the organizations and the filmmakers and things like that you know just going down that rabbit hole of trying to find trying to find more things and you know I always had this kind of tendency to be a kind of um, um, you know being drawn to more kind of obscure things really so so I enjoyed you know kind of digging into those things and then um, I, so I studied film and then I, I actually studied um, film archiving later on it was like this one small course in the UK that uh, in Norwich that did that course so, that, so it was a really small community of people that did it and actually it, the course doesn't run anymore but the people that did that course ended up in these film archives all around the world and um, I realised um, quite quickly that I didn't want to be an archivist I did work as an archivist for a while um, but I didn't want to do that. Why I did it was because I wanted to get into archives and get my hands on stuff. After I left college, um, I ended up actually going to New York, partly as a placement thing, and then actually working at Anthology Film Archives um, in the 90s. And I guess that was another kind of gateway into lots of things. I know you talked to you talked to M.M. Sarah and people like that recently, and um, you know I met her when I was in New York originally. And in in some ways, like I've been, I've stayed connected to those people and those those kind of communities as well. As the kind of um, <clears throat> you know, at least for the UK scene, where it was a kind of primary influencer. You were definitely in the right place at the right time, I think. And it, it's interesting. A lot of the people that we talk to on this podcast from, I guess, of our generation, the the the, the early influences for them were things on film four. Or um, you know, discovering Derek Jarman films, but I, I, I guess you were getting to go and see uh, work in the Scala, and you know, the, as you said, the kind of the final days of the the filmmakers co-op. So it must have been kind of great to be in London at that time, and and not have to kind of dig too deep to be able to kind of meet that meet the artists and, and see the work that they were making. I still came from the suburbs, you know. I was mm-hmm. trying to get away from it, but um, you know. The Channel 4 as well was this amazing window into all of this kind of bizarre stuff as well and then I, I went to study film in London and um, so so I was actively kind of a student in London studying film and looking at this sort of stuff as well and um, it was very exciting for me to to get into the kind of proximity of of people like Derek Jarman or I remember a college, a college, when I first went to college uh, Mel- Melanie Shabazz and, and people like that I was really interested in I mean it was just like all of this stuff that was this kind of rich kind of film culture that was that was just not that was that was only just 
barely getting to the, the the suburbs where I was from in terms of in terms of this kind of like weird weird signal from from uh, Channel Four. <laughs> so uh, let, let's talk about the formation of Lux. So what what was happening in London in the early two thousands in the field of artists moving image? What was the story? What was your involvement there? I got a job at what was then called uh, London Electronic Arts which was an organisation for supporting artists working with video. So it's always important to remember that even then there was film people and there was video people and they didn't really mix. <laughs> um, and anyway, So anyway, I was working with this video organisation, which was the sister organisation of the London Filmmakers Co-op. And I just started working there on the eve of both organisations moving to this new building called the Lark Centre in Hoxton Square at the end of the 90s and um, so it was an amazing time to be involved in that uh, organisation um, so they moved into this new building and it was the first time you know basically these organisations you know for you know 30 odd years it existed in quite run down run down precarious precarious buildings so it's kind of extraordinary time uh for them to get this kind of brand spanking new building with a new cinema and new gallery and things like that. It was but also it was very kind of um, new new labourish, I guess. You know, everything was shiny and it was in uh, Shoreditch in East London, which before then had been quite kind of a run down area and was suddenly kind of riding the crest of the wave um, in terms of uh, this new kind of excitement and hope around the, this and also around this this area of practice. But um, unfortunately, it went wrong very quickly. <laughs> At the end of the '90s, in the UK, there was uh, this was the first wave of all of this kind of national lottery money being available for organisations. So suddenly, all this money was injected into quite small organisations that, and it kind of blew their minds. It blew a lot of people's minds. You know that you know these organisations have been going for years and years as quite small artist-run organisations, and suddenly had this huge injection of cash huge but kind of uh, taking on all of this bureaucracy and administration and and also this kind of shiny new new public face that maybe wasn't particularly well considered in terms of where they come from or the connection between what they what, where they derived and where they come from and also uh, at that time you know because there was all this money and kind of hopefulness organizations were really encouraged to be overly optimistic in terms of you know what they might achieve with uh, in terms of audiences and attention and things like that and uh, that generally didn't happen or it, or it takes a long time to establish those sort of things mm-hmm. so so um, it went wrong very quickly it was much more expensive um, to run I think culturally it was culturally all these things had happened um, ahead of the organisation's capacity to think about what it actually meant, you know, to 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 have to to change to have this new phase, and um, I think there was a lot of kind of alienation for it from its history and from its traditional um, membership and things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So it kind of like slightly alienated where it had come from, and it hadn't really found where it was going to. It stumbled along for a couple of years, and then and and it had quite financial big financial problems so the Arts Council suggested that they would bail out the organisations if the Filmmakers Co-op and 
LEA, London Electronic Arts, merged. So that literally happened overnight, pretty much, or over Christmas, which, without any... I mean, it was just a crisis situation. But if you think again about the culture behind those things, it was actually, like, really problematic, you know? I I worked there then, I can remember not knowing how to answer the phone (laughs) after Christmas, (laughs) like what it was called. You know, and and also just that kind of submerging of, of two quite distinct cultures into one. So anyway, that happened. It didn't sort out. It didn't really resolve the. Um, it caused more kind of cultural issues, and um, it didn't really sort out the financial issues. And then by that point, um, this um, shiny new building, which wasn't owned, it was just rented. Uh, the first kind of rent review came up. And it went, the, the rent was potentially going to go from £30,000 a year to £500,000 a year in one jump, which even today would be, like, impossible. Yeah, uh-huh. And so, so um, and, and, and uh, by that point, um, the director left and I became the acting director. And um, it became clear to me immediately that the organisation was, like, um, borderline insolvent. So um, I took it into this. In those days of the Arts Council, they had this thing, ironically called the Recovery Program, which was for uh, strategically important organisations that got themselves into hot water because of this lottery funding. It was pretty much the most miserable year of my life where um, we had all of these consultants call over the organisations, including things like forensic accountants and things like that. (laughs) And all of these people, and um, then at the end of it, they kind of turned around and went, nope, <laughs> no, we're not going to kind of bail you out. And sort of quite rightly in some ways, because, you know, you wouldn't really want the Arts Council just like increasing the funding by £500,000 a year just to go into a private developer's pocket. So they mm-hmm. so they closed down, so they basically withdrew the funding and the... the um, the board decided to make everybody redundant and to close the organisation and, and so we all lost our jobs. It was a huge kind of psychic shock for the community and for everybody that worked there obviously and um, for whatever reason <laughs> I couldn't, I, 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 I've always had the kind of like a strong sense of responsibility to things in terms of so it's like trying to keep in touch with everybody during that time and um, trying to think whether there was some way to take something forward with it. And one of the main things that was wor- that I was worried about was that the organisation had accrued this huge collection of works that if something wasn't done about, it would dissipate to the four winds. So I suggested to the Arts Council, I asked the Arts Council if I could try and set up something um, while this insolvency was happening. So that's something that often happens within insolvent companies where they have like a holding company if like a part of an organisation a part of a company could continue so I was working under Pricewaterhousecoopers in a very kind of weird thing where we we were um, so they agreed to this they gave us two days to get everything we could out of the building there wasn't of value because everything else they wanted to sell off so obviously we rescued all the the collection some very minimal kind of equipment, things like steam vecs that nobody wanted. And we also, we also, um, they also let us take all the film equipment because, you know, they, they didn't see any kind of value in that either. Mm-hmm. And um, 
we, we weren't planning to kind of set up a lab or anything but we we took it and we put it in storage and then later on we gave it to uh, not nowhere when they opened which is a you probably know is kind of an artist's film lab that is it is now called not not nowhere <laughs> it still exists in london um so uh, me, so me and a colleague, Mike Sperlinger, who also worked at the Lux Centre, started to um, see whether we could. Somebody gave us like an office, and we just piled everything in a huge pile on the floor, and then just started to kind of like work backwards, like with one chair, big pile of films, and um, like a telephone balanced, <laughs> balanced on a can of on a pile of cans of film. Um, and, and so, and so that's where it kind of started. And um, you know, luck, luckily, there was always, um, you know, there was always a. Um, so I'm getting an aeroplane overhead. So there's obviously always, um, you know, always within the organisations there has been this kind of business. Business. I mean, it's not you know like a huge money making business, but it's a business none, nonetheless in terms of the loan of films, and that's how that's how we've always supported ourselves so we did have a kind of means to support ourselves and we we made a go of it and about a year later we applied to the arts council and um whether they would kind of support lux this new lux in a much much more scaled down thing with three people working there and they kind of went for it and then the rest is history i suppose into the moth light into the Moth Light podcast. You went from the early days of Lux with a, a pile of films, and of course now you represent the country's only significant collection of artists' film and video, and, and it is a huge collection. Tell me, at what point is a work or an artist included in this collection? Historically, for many years, in the old organisations, the collection was open access, so basically, anybody could anybody could have their work in the collection, and that was a very important principle of the early days of co-op. Um, that basically your film was your membership, mm-hmm. so anybody could deposit a film and become a member, and and then that was kind of replicated in the the video organisation as well. And then at a certain time, at a certain point, that changed. I mean, I think it changed before my time. Along with that idea that anybody that it was open access. Um, they also had a principle that nothing would be promoted above anything else. Mm-hmm. So there was this kind of weird thing that would happen as well, where basically you as a filmmaker would deposit your film and you would give um, like a kind of, you would write your own kind of catalogue entry for that film. And then basically it would sit on the shelf and it would be listed in the catalogue. But And, and the distribution workers weren't allowed to point to anything so, so it's just this kind of weird thing that was almost a bit like dropping your film down a well or something, you know. In that, it was it was very consciously passive, you know. But and the but the problem with that, of course, was then only the famous things would ever get rented because uh, because actually the co-op collection started with a kind of gift of films via Jonas Mikas and P. Adam Sidney. So there was all the kind of classic um, American underground films and of course everybody just wanted those and nobody really found out about any of the British filmmakers I mean obviously gradually you know people became 
more well known, but there was this huge kind of ballast of stuff that was never seen or shown. I mean, there's still works, there's still uh, treasures within the collection that are that are regularly discovered. Actually, amazing things. Sometimes the only copy of things that exists, or sometimes like an one film by somebody that never made a film again that went on to have an amazing life <laughs> and things like that so there's all sorts of amazing archaeology still to be done in the collection <laughs> but I think um, so at a certain point that kind of changed to um, I think for a long time they'd moved to this kind of like um, like a panel like a submission panel where people could submit works but that was a very unhappy thing as well because basically it would they would just like be rejecting you know, obviously, with anything like that, you know, any open submission thing, there's always lots more rejections than there are success, just by the nature of the kind of numbers. So in recent times, um, you know, our kind of philosophy about it now is is um, the first thing we need to do is um, we realised, you know, that obviously it's not acceptable to do the passive distribution idea now. Because in a way, if we're going to do that, then you might as well keep it on your own shelf and have your own website and things like that. Because it's not going to really, it's not going to really help much. So, so the first, so the idea now is that we have to sort of be in good faith if we take somebody's work on, in that we think we can kind of do something with it. But also because, like, we've got so many works and things now. In a way, like it's sort of, I don't know if like silted up is the right way to say this, but like. We were pretty small, you know. One one thing to think about with Lux is, it's and we 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 actually did a review a few years ago of the collection, and one of the kind of things that came back was there's not another organisation that has such uh, small resources and such a big responsibility, <laughs> and I think that is a problem, you know, that we have that we have this kind of disparity between the need and the thing that the, that, that we're stewards of the importance of that and the size of that versus the resources we have to serve that. So actually we can take on less and less works, which which is which is quite a problem in some ways. But one of the ideas one of the ideas to deal with that was Lux Scotland. There's such a lot of important history and there's a lot of important work being made out of Scotland that it almost be like it could be represented in and out of Scotland as well, you know, that would also maybe allow um some more resources you know rather than just like this one collection that's like you know kind of overwhelmed with 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 works so how we do it now is we don't do a kind of open submission thing at the moment because we don't want to just be like rejecting people we do have a kind of a principle so what we do is we have like an acquisition panel and like every year we have like a couple of uh, external people that would advise that and the general kind of principles of of like the work that we take on now is I mean really we, we take on artists or filmmakers rather than individual works so the first thing would be the person would have to have a body of work you know that they've kind of committed to that area of practice that there's um, there's a degree of kind of um, peer recognition beyond our interest in that person so there's actually like an interest there's an interest in that person's work over and above our subjective interest in them and that they are making work that is distributable. So, and by that I mean work that isn't kind of like overly reliant on specific kind of contexts 
and presentations to be legible because obviously one of the things we do is we like distribute work we exploit the kind of um, the beauty of moving image work in that it can slip between lots of different places if, if something's like really fixed in terms of its meaning and its presentation that's quite difficult for us to distribute you know so also it's, it's not kind of like legible outside of a particular place that it's presented or something or physically it doesn't make sense to show it elsewhere those are the rough guidelines i mean it's still an open question basically and it's a difficult one it's a difficult one to answer you know even even for those guidelines there's obviously degrees of subjectivity within everything as well that you can't pretend aren't there as well we try to take our taste out of it and we try to think we umbrella lots of different kinds of practices mm-hmm. you know if you think of moving image practice it does encompass all sorts of different things and I don't think there's any kinds of works that we exclude we try to encompass all of those areas of practice but you know how to do that how to do that in a kind of a a democratic fair way with limited resources is is the perennial perennial question I guess. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to get that that insight and obviously it, it is important that a people can get access to, to the works, you know, to, to, to show at festivals or whatever. And the artists are, are, are paid, you know, the fair fee for the work. I've really enjoyed um, over the years some of your online exhibitions. One of them is David Hall's film from 1969 called Vertical, and it's a work that I'm quite obsessed with. And, oh. um, you know, it's presented as part of an exhibition on landscape into film. So I, I can go and watch that film at any time I like, and I often do. So h- how important is it for, for Lux that artists do get the chance to access some of those seminal works just to enhance their own practice and, and view online? Yeah, I mean, it's, ab- it's, abs- it's absolutely essential. I mean, I'm, I'm really... Um, this is absolutely crucial, and, I, and, and, and that's very much one of our responsibilities as a kind of an you know as a supporter of this area of practice but also an advocate for this area of practice and actually I think historically one of the problems in this area has been its uh, inaccessibility because if you think again if you go back to the times we were talking about when we were young men like how difficult how difficult things were to access you know that actually it was you were quite privileged if you were if you were to be able to write about this works these this area of practice in the in the eighties for example, you would have to have some serious privileged access to be able to not even know about it mm-hmm. i mean you know so i'm so i'm really really conscious of that so i'm i'm absolutely uh so it's absolutely crucial that access the the problem but but just uh the inverse of that is so it's partly obviously about the artist's intentions sometimes because um, obviously we have to, you know, not art, all artists want to show their, have their works available online and things like that. And that's completely understandable. And then I think there is this problem we have um, a more, uh, a kind of cultural problem about sometimes misreading what the actual thing is. So this is a kind of a value question in some ways that we struggle with sometimes that if something's online and available why should a museum collect that work you know and um, I you know I personally think things can exist simultaneously in all of those spaces but there is this um, 
there is this kind of problem still in the art world which is related to kind of traditional art world value and things like that as well because obviously it's important to us that artists' work is valued um, i.e. that artists get money <laughs> for their work but also that it enters the kind of Parthenon mm-hmm. of art history because in a way if you think about the history of art it's written through collections and so it's really important so that's an important part of our kind of advocacy is trying to get these art institutions to collect this work and to preserve this work for the future and not with it just within somewhere like Lux but in somewhere like Tate as well so that it exists alongside it exists in those narr- in those broader narratives somebody like uh, David Hall is not like a marginal figure you know who's like a, you know and if you think about vertical it comes very much it's feeding all of these other ideas and contexts are feeding into that work from his background as a from his uh, background as a sculptor, the history of land art, all of these things, you know, are, are really important as well. So, um, but I think at the moment, culturally, we, we sometimes struggle with that kind of sense of um, what it means to have things online, that it almost can be seen sometimes as a devaluing thing. Yeah, it's a big subject and it's it, it, it's quite tricky, but but general, generally we, we are really committed to making works as available as possible into the moth light into the moth light podcast let's talk about the way that um you support artists so the, the critical forum has always been interesting for me, the, the, a monthly discussion group for artists who work within the moving image and to talk about ideas and practice and a, and a nice supportive environment um, with the collaboration and a dialogue with, with Lux. Um, so t- tell me a bit about those critical forums and uh, how, how Lux is a catalyst for, for those discussions. Moving image practice is, um, it is new, okay? It's only like 100 years old or so. So we're still figuring things out. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's yeah. very new. And um, it's also um, in, inherently a network practice, okay? So um, unlike more traditional, more studio-based, slower kinds of practices, like painting and sculpture and things like that, it kind of exists. It needs to exist in the kind of ebb and flow of the world and, it, and through networks. So connections, everything, in terms of moving image works. You know, basically, moving image comes alive at the point that it meets the world. So if you, you think about... So I think about that a lot, and I think that that thing about kind of networks is really, really important. So engendering connections is really, really important, just in terms of encouraging the journey of your work through the world but also just like the visibility of your work in the world. Those things are really, really important. So that's one thing. Uh, the forums came from this idea of just kind of connecting people. I was also kind of interested in this idea that um, the inaccessibility and illegibility of arts organisations, just generally, you know, just this kind of question. I think it's always really, really hard of like, how do you get access to things? It's quite oblique, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, you know how, how... So always in terms of Lux, 
like this idea of kind of doorways seems really important to me. This idea of like, you know, try and signal some doorways into things. So, so, so originally when I started the first group in London, it was kind of like, I can't, you know, I just don't have the capacity as one person to just be in touch with tons of artists all the time. But I could like start to make these groups where we can start to have some kind of exchange and dialogue and we can also platform and table what they're interested in rather than just kind of like steering the agenda too much and kind of just learn from it. Mm-hmm. So in some ways it was very, exper- it was very, very experimental. Um, also, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this idea of um, artist agency. I think artists are taught that they don't have agency, you know, and it always seems like your career is shaped by these mysterious forces and the um, the vagaries of, of faceless people making decisions about your work that you don't really know what the rules are. I'm sure you know that feeling. <laughs> and um, so I think the idea of artists coming together and influencing, making the culture that they want is really, really important as well. The groups uh, have existed in lots of places around the, Q- the UK and in, and in Ireland as well. And some 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 of the groups have had like tremendous effects the the group in london has always worked differently to everywhere else just because um you know it's just like the the transitory nature of community the community in london and Mm. also just like the huge amount of people so like in london it would always be we'd open a call and there'd be like 100 people 100 new people each time so we'd just like run it for a year and then throw everybody out and get a new group in other parts of the UK and Ireland, they um, some of the groups have gone through like generations. So I would very much say that the group in um, like the whole idea of Lux Scotland comes out of originally a forum group in Glasgow. You know that really I think kind of tilled the earth for that to be to be able to exist. There've been amazing things happen in other places as well. There've been a group. There's been a group in Dublin for many years that has. And, and as you know, we talked about this before because we both went to the Plastic Festival. That um, that came out of that came out of a group in Dublin, oh, mm-hmm. you know. And and now there's like an organisation in Dublin as well. And I, I mean, I'm not taking credit for that myself, but but um, it was definitely galvanised. That energy um, was galvanised in in there, and it's changed moving image in Ireland, you know. Now and there's a group in Cork as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've always been really interested in, you know, sort of group dynamics, really, like how people how people work together, and about this idea of kind of uh, how can you um, how can you create a kind of an intentional group? And I think one of the important things is to make it strange in some ways. So you have to make it uh, you have to introduce a degree of formality to things, and an, and an idea of an intentionality in things. So it's it's kind of like how do you get beyond that idea of like talking to your mates in the pub to, to actually something that's more, maybe more uncomfortable, but more productive in some ways, you know? I always talk about this. The thing that has always influenced me is this thing about kind of action, action learning. I don't know if you know about that, but it was, I think it originally came from a kind of a management training idea at British Steel in the 1950s. But it was basically about this idea of uh, a, like a non-hierarchical learning model where, you know, like the traditional education, educational idea is that, you know, 
the teacher's a jug or something and all, all the people participating are like half-filled glasses waiting to be topped up <laughs> and so so instead um you say this would be my phrase everybody's abundant you know so you're abundant you may be abundant with naivety which is actually a brilliant useful thing because i meet a lot of people that got like phds and be teaching forever and they're kind of a stuck sometimes and like a naive inexperienced person isn't afraid to ask the, the questions that these people are maybe afraid to ask so this idea that you have a group that um, collectively uses this imbalance of experience to problem solve is like something that's very interesting to me. You know, so everybody's abundant with something and together we can use this kind of energy to address problems together. So that's the kind of philosophy. And then I didn't want it, didn't want it to be um, uh, like a crit group or something because I think anybody, particularly people that have been to art school, they're very comfortable with this format of like people show their work, other people talk about their work and it's very codified, it's very prescribed the way that you operate within this. And there's there's a there's a kind of a an economy to that uh, to that exchange where it's like you 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 help me and then I help you and, and it's a bit like of a one way street really. So so the first thing I said was like you can't show your own work in these groups. <laughs> Instead what you do is um, you kind of like present, I get people to present things that are interesting to them or they're wrestling with and they might use other artists' work to get to that point or it might be a text or another artist's work or something like that as a way to um, create a conversation that was more open to other people to join. So if we ultimately think about it as kind of issues in moving image practice, you know, because obviously everybody's engaged with it and that's what it's about, then to me it was like more, uh, it seemed to be like a more open way of thinking about these things. And everybody was, um, you know, presenting it from this position of like, I don't know, you know, sometimes I don't know what this is or I don't know why I'm interested in this or things like that, you know. So there was also that idea of a kind of vulnerability and things like that as well. So so that's generally my kind of philosophy. And, and, and obviously people have gone in different directions it's up to them to go in, 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 in kind of different directions with these groups as well. But that's that's usually where I kind of like, that's where I always kind of start the group from, whether that ends up in another mm-hmm. place. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to hear. Um, again, go back to um, artists solving problems, because I, I know that you offer one-to-one advice sessions for um, artists working with the moving image um, what are artists looking for in that, that kind of one-to-one setting? And I know that you actually take some of the one-to-ones as well. So how important is it for you as a director um, to kind of keep that yeah. contact with these emerging or established artists as well? Yeah, it's it's the best thing that I do, actually. It's the thing that I get most kind of meaning from. So I've always done it, actually, for the whole time I've been at Lux. And um, yeah, it's really, really important. And it's in a way it's shaped those conversations have shaped the whole kind of direction of Lux. Mm-hmm. I like this idea of kind of listening at the edge of the organisation. That's what how I think about it. You know, like making sure you're listening, you're not complacent. I'm always in, in listening at the periphery of things because also you know I know the people that we work with and I'm in touch with them regularly. So it's not like I have to kind of keep on servicing them all the time. I'm interested in the people that we're not working with 
as well you know and like what the mood is and and what people need and things like that and so a lot of initiatives you know and actually even like the forum groups came out of those conversations they came out of one-to-one discussions with artists it was like some kind of solution to a need um that people needed more of a kind of connection to community especially after leaving college and things like that um so that's what i get out of it and in terms of um i've always taken this very holistic approach to these things i mean i think somebody's practice is very much them you can't just teach somebody like hard skills to make their practice better like if i if i said to you like oh here's how you market yourself or make a website or something it's going to make your practice better it's more like you have to deal with these things holistically mm-hmm. so actually there i find them quite profound emotional conversations <laughs> often with people okay. you know in terms of like unlocking sort of things so so it can be like really it can actually be really profound life stuff sometimes but but then sometimes it can be just um a lot of it is about helping people navigate this kind of mysterious oblique codified world in which this work circulate so demystifying those things giving people strategy like giving people um you know like i said earlier you know i am interested in this idea of agency like giving people a more of a sense of agency that i think is really taken away from them so a lot of encouragement as well and just thinking about um i think what you need to do whether you agree with the systems of art you know and the institutions or that we work that that affect us um, or not you have to understand the rules of them so i think that's really important in terms of empowering people to at least if you can understand the rules you can you can navigate those things more i like to think you know i'm privileged in terms of just being around long enough to 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 understand some of these things and to try and impart that kind of knowledge Ben, it's been um, it's been a real treat to to have a chat with you today, and, and uh, just dig into some of the information and detail about Lux. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much, Jason. Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light podcast.